Well, we've spent the last six weeks uh, talking about core beliefs, the, the core beliefs of this church, the core beliefs of Christianity in general, um, who, is, who is God, who is Jesus, who is the Spirit, you know, how does the Spirit of God interact with us, dwell inside us, um, people, salvation, eternity, all these concepts, you know, how does who God is, thank you, how does who God is uh, affect how we treat people? You know, who, who do we believe people are made in the image of God? All these things we've spent the last six weeks talking about. We thought a good way to conclude this series would be to talk about the Bible then. All these core beliefs come out of the Bible. They flow out of the Bible. So when you think about the Bible... What is the Bible? How did we get the Bible? How did we get not, not just the original writings? How did we get the English Bible, the translation that we have in our language? What is the Bible? You know, what is it in general? What's the central story of it? And then why should I trust it? Why should I believe what it has to say? Because all these things, all these core beliefs flow out of our reading of the Bible, our interpretation of it, mostly in our language. And how does that affect our biases? So let's start off here a little bit with how did we get the Bible? And I'll, I'll tell you right off the bat here, this is, this is a very, very large topic. They told me I had two hours this morning, so, so sorry. No, not really. Um, it might take that anyway, but large topic. So boiling this down is pretty tough, uh, but I, I did the best I could, so hopefully this is all going to make sense. When, when we went back, back when I spoke in December, um, we were going through a series, and, and I talked about um, this, this period from 1000 B.C. to 0 B.C., basically the birth of Jesus, and what happened historically during that time. Um, if we go back and we look at that time, I talked about the silence, which was that last 400 years where, you know, there were things going on, there were scriptures being written before that. And then there was this 400-year period of silence before the New Testament, before Jesus comes on the scene. Um, what, what happened then before 400 B.C. and back to about 1,000 B.C., maybe 1,200 B.C., is what we call the Old Testament was written at that time. So things that were most likely passed down as a result of oral tradition, you know, things that happened, you know, Noah and Abraham and, and these, these fathers of old, their stories were passed down orally. At some point got recorded, and we don't know exactly how that all happened, but we do know that getting to about 1,000 B.C., you know, King David, Samuel before him, King Solomon, these things started increasingly getting written down, codified. They would have written on scrolls at the time, um, so these things started getting written down. Not everyone could read, and so when you were writing in the Old Testament in Hebrew, and in the Old Testament there's a little bit of Aramaic as well, these scriptures were written to be read aloud. And so what would have happened in the synagogues in Jerusalem and Israel in general is somebody would get up and they would unroll the scroll and they would read this thing out loud. And so in the Old Testament there's lots of you know repetition and there's things that, because it's an oral tradition, you've got things that are repeated because it's like putting it in italics or putting it in boldface. So the Old Testament was written between about 400 B.C. and about 1,000 B.C. 
If we take this timeline then and we slide it all the way forward to the modern day, what happens after that? That's what I want to spend a fair amount of time talking about this morning. Uh, You see there's a tiny little blip there, New Testament, NT. So the New Testament was written, Jesus was born about, let's say, zero. He died at 33 A.D., And the New Testament was written between about 45 A.D. and about 85 A.D., so in a fairly short span of time. You know, and these were what we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, stories about what Jesus did when he was here. Then you've got Acts, which is the Acts of the Church, you know, the formation of the Church as we would know it today, and things basically changing from the law in the Old Testament to the Church uh, these days. And then you've got a bunch of letters that were written by various people, mostly by Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, talking about, okay, here's what Jesus said, here's what the Old Testament said, then how are we supposed to live our life? Those things were written in a very short span after the death of Jesus. And one of the important things to understand when you talk about credibility of the New Testament in particular is that you know, there were still a lot of people alive when these books were written that would have been there when Jesus was on the planet. They would have been there when Jesus died. They knew the people that were involved in all these stories that are told in the New Testament. It's reasonable to think that if somebody had written down a story, you know, in the book of Luke, he had written down, this is what Jesus said, this is what he did, there would have been a thousand people that could have said, no, that didn't happen, that's not right. And those things didn't happen because what was recorded was recorded under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is what we believe, that the Spirit of God had people write down what he wanted us to know, what he wanted us to know today. And because of that, we believe that there's authority in the Scripture. But it could have been disproven at the time if someone had stepped forward and said, yeah, I was there, uh, and I saw this happen, and that isn't the way it happened. So what happened from there on? This, this took quite a bit of, of work to try and boil all this down. But uh, you've got that Rome conquers in 63. That's from the last timeline. So as you move forward from there, you've got the New Testament written up until about 85 A.D., then we are calling it the New Testament today, but at the time what they had was really just a collection of books and letters and writings. And these things got then collected over the next about 300 years and eventually became codified into what we call the canon of Scripture. So canon from the Greek meaning a measuring rod. And what would happen is groups of people would get together and and these councils would get together and they would argue, and they would fight, and they would read these scriptures, and they would pray, and they would say, God, what, what here is, is of you, and what here is not of you? And they would go through this process over and over again until about 400 A.D. we came to the point where we had a codified canon. So the, the measuring rod had been used by people who were really seeking God to understand what needed to be in this book and what needed to be taken out. Council of Jamnia, there were a couple of these, 90 and 118 um, AD, and these councils were actually of Jewish scholars that were trying to say what should be in the Old Testament, in the Jewish scriptures. And so the first times that we saw the the list of 39 books exclusive were at these councils uh, fairly soon after the New Testament books were written. Athanasius' festal letter, so a festal letter back in the day, Athanasius lived in Alexandria where there was a school of astronomy, 
And in that school, they were able to chart the stars and they knew the phases of the moon and things like that. The, the date of Easter is always based, based on Passover, on the phase of the moon. And so that's why Easter moves around still to this day. Every year, you don't really know when it's going to be until you look it up. Well, back at that time, they couldn't pull out their phone and look it up. Somebody had to write a letter out to the churches every year and say, Easter this year is on this day. And so every year, Athanasius at this time would write his festal letter, the the feast letter, and they would announce, this year Easter is on this day. So when he wrote that letter in 367 AD, it's the first recording that we have of the 27 books of the New Testament being agreed to. The first time that they're listed, they're not listed in the same order that we have them today, but all the books that we have in the New Testament today are listed there. And then it was the Council of Carthage. So Carthage being on the, on the north coast of Africa, a bunch of Christian fathers got together back then, and they agreed on the Bible as we know it today. That's the first time that, that all the books in the Bible were in the order that they are today, and they were all listed uh, as we know them today. So at that point, we would say the canon was completed there was general agreement among Christians on these are the books that ought to be in the Bible. So shortly after that, you see here on the left, it says Latin Vulgate. So uh, a guy named St. Jerome uh, pulled together all of these writings that had now been agreed on and translated them into Latin. So you had writings in Hebrew in the Old Testament and Aramaic and in Greek in the New Testament. He took all of that and translated that into Latin and that was called the Vulgate, um, which uh, is where we get our term vulgar from, which I find kind of funny. But really all that means is common. Uh, the, that word in Latin means common. So this was the most common translation. This was the translation that was used from 400 AD all the way through. And, and you could still get the Vulgate today, and a lot of Catholic churches would still read out of that today. So that translation was used all through the Middle Ages and then coming up to the Renaissance time. Uh, so the, the very, very most, the most common translation that there was available. Um, it's also true, though, that not a lot of folks spoke or read Latin at that time. So it was, it was kind of a, I don't know, the, the dynamic was that the church had a lot of power because they had the scriptures in a language other people couldn't read, and therefore the, the reading of it and the interpretation of it was up to the church. And over that period of time, you see some good things, you certainly see some bad things and some abuses of power, which we won't get into at this point, but really I, I think those abuses of power came out of the fact that the Bible was not available in the common tongue, that people could just pick it up and read it, which is something we really take for granted today. So then you get to John Wycliffe, and over the period of 1380 to 82, he produced the first English translation of the Bible. And you can still get a copy of this and look at it, and it's old English, it's very hard to read. You can kind of tell that maybe there's some English in there, but old English is tough from those who took uh, English in high school and college. Very difficult to read. But it was starting to move then towards you know, English language, a translation being made in a language that people could actually understand. It's also good to note, though, that when he did that, he translated the Vulgate. So you had a translation being made of a translation, which is generally not the best idea because 
you know, you're, you're changing the words and then you're changing them again. And, and so I think they were doing the best they had with what, best they could with what they had. But a translation of a translation is not ideal. When Gutenberg uh, invented his printing press around 14, or sorry, yeah, 1450, 1440, uh, the first thing that they printed was the Bible, and he printed the Latin Bible. So there are very few of these in existence today. Uh, you can go on, on Wikipedia and look it up and see where different ones are held. You can go see these today. But, you know, he invented movable type. And so the idea that then you could print Bibles and make them available at a much lower price meant that it was going to start spreading out. But the first one that was printed was still printed in Latin, which, again, not a lot of people, especially by, you know, 1,400 years after the death of Jesus, not a lot of people were speaking Latin anymore. Maybe more than today, but probably not very many. Uh, Great Bible in 1538. So this was the first printed English translation of the Bible that, that was available, that was authorized by the Anglican Church, by the church in England. And so this was the first time things really start to get uh, a wider audience. The Bible is available to more people. Uh, a, a, printed, a, ha- a printed Bible through the press was still going to be an expensive item to folks in those days. It's not as, as easy to get as it would be today. But that was the first time it was printed, mass-produced in English, and uh, that would have been the Bible that when the pilgrims came over on the Mayflower, they would have brought that with them. We tend to think King James because we think of that as the old translation of the Bible. The great Bible is what they would have had at the time. And then the first time that chapters and verses were added to the Bible was in 1560 in the Geneva Bible, another English printing of the Bible but you, it's kind of hard to think about. We're so used to referring to chapter verse. It was a very, very long time before this codified document uh, that, that we know today as the Bible had chapters and verse breaks in it where you could go refer to something specific. And I think that's interesting, but I also think it's interesting to think these chapters and verse breaks are not necessarily God-inspired uh, so I've got a good example of this here. So I just, I, I opened up a, an NIV Bible. This is the best example of this I've ever found where, you know, the NIV, not only does it have the chapter and verse breaks, which are standard, but it also has kind of these headings, paragraph breaks, and it, it, it indicates by the heading what is going to happen in this section of the Bible. So if you look at this, you've got, this is Deuteronomy 14, So at the end of verse 21, don't cook a young goat in its mother's milk. And if you're reading through this section, you've got this weird statement that's made that seems to have nothing to do with anything. Then you've got this heading break talking about tithing. And then it goes on to verse 22. Be sure to set apart a tenth of everything your fields produce every year. So I saw this presented one time, you know, why is this don't cook a young goat in its mother's milk statement here? What, what does this even mean? Well, think about that. What, what is the milk to the young goat? It's life. It's sustenance. It's don't take something that was meant for good and make it a source of death for that goat. So the author here is saying don't take what was meant for good and to, to be life and make it an instrument of death. And the very next statement is, be sure to set aside a tenth of your field. So 
Don't take what God meant as an instrument of life, the produce of the field, and make it an instrument of death by hoarding it and being greedy. So these things go together. This is one statement that when the NIV was put together, maybe they didn't get that that was one statement, and they put this break there that's in the wrong place. So fair to say, when you, when you look at chapter breaks, when you look at verse breaks, when you look at these headings and different breaks like this, these are not God-inspired things. Often, if, if I'm going to study a section of the Bible, I will go on BibleGateway.com, I'll cut all the text out, I'll paste it into Word, I'll go delete all the verses, I'll go delete all the chapters, delete all the footnotes, just delete all that stuff, and just have the text. And you might go a chapter before and a chapter after, and then you read this, and you just look for the natural breaks. Where are the natural breaks? Where does this thought begin, and where does it end? And sometimes it goes on, and you can find places in the New Testament where the idea goes on for chapters. And, you know, pulling out a verse here and there, pulling out a section out of the context of that doesn't really do it justice. And I understand there's a place for that, but context is a really big deal Um, I've used examples before where with Paul's letters, you know, he wrote a letter to someone and we go and we pull individual words and pieces out of that letter. You know, if if I wrote my wife a love letter, she's not going to go pull out one line out of it. She's going to read the letter. It's a letter. You read the whole thing. The context is the whole thing. And so think about that when you're reading the Bible. These, these, these breaks in the document that we sometimes look at and think, well, I'll just read chapter 5. Well, that wasn't really what was originally intended. Okay, so moving on. King James Bible in 1611. So when, when King James came to the throne, so you've got Shakespeare, Queen Elizabeth, you know, late 1500s after Henry VIII in England, and King James comes to the throne, what he was interested in is, I want to go get a Bible. I don't want to produce another translation of the Latin Vulgate. I want to go back and I want to find the original language documents, everything that we can find, and I want a group of scholars to put together something that goes back to the original languages. And so that is why, even to this day, the King James Version, I mean, other than all the these and nows, which are, make it pretty hard to read, um, but the King James Version is still today a pretty accurate word-for-word translation of the, of the original Bible. I mean, they go back to the Septuagint, the Greek translation that was made in 300 B.C., which we still have pieces of that. They went back and got everything as original as they could possibly get, and they put that together, and they spent a lot of time and effort under the king's direction to produce something that to this day is still a good translation. Uh, and then other translations, which I'll elaborate on here a little bit. I have to say, though, when I put late 1900s on there, it pained me a little bit, because I remember the late 1900s pretty well. Uh, that, that makes it sound like a long time ago. It really wasn't. Um, but these, these three translations are some of the more common ones today. I think the Living Bible is another one that I would put on there for one that, that, that people see fairly often. All three of these translations like King James, went back to the originals. They went back to the oldest, most original documents we have. They put tons and tons of effort with a large group of scholars into figuring out how do we make these translations work. But, but all three of these had a completely different goal and philosophy. 
in producing the Bible that they ended up producing. On one end, you've got the the New American Standard, the NASB. Uh, In 1971, that was published by Lachman Foundation. Their goal was a word-for-word translation. So let's go through the book of Matthew. Let's look at every Greek word. What is the best English word or phrase that encapsulates that word? And so if, when, when you're looking at verse by verse by verse, what does this verse say exactly? When you use NASB to read this, you can get word for word for word what the original text said or meant. And as a result, it reads kind of choppy. It's more difficult to read, but it's more accurate to the original. Uh, the message, all the way to the other end of the spectrum, is a thought for thought, a paraphrase. So if I'm going to read like the entire book of Ezekiel, let's say, and I want to really get the big thought, you know, I can read the NASB and it's going to be accurate word for word. But if I read the message, on the other hand, it's going to be a paraphrase. It was going for what's the big thought here? You know, I know what this word means, but what's the big thought? And let's put it in the most modern English we can possibly put it in so that it reads and it really, it flows well. And so when you read the message, you're getting a completely different experience than when you read the NASB. The NIV is the balanced version, the one that's in between. You know, if you're going to memorize scripture in an English Bible, NIV is the easiest to memorize. It flows pretty well. It's still pretty accurate word for word, although... When you're, when you're going to get up and talk about a passage of Scripture, you know, other than going back to the original languages, which I have a pretty limited ability to do, what you do is you go and you, I'm going to look at this in NASB. I'm going to see what the words mean. I'm going to look at it. I'm going to read it in the message to get the flow. I'm going to read it in the NIV. I'm going to look at what all these differences are and try and figure out what does the original language, what, what was God really trying to tell me when, when he decided this piece, uh, this story should be in the Bible. Um, we don't necessarily have access as, you know, modern American folks. Not everyone has access to the original languages. So really the best that you can do in most cases is look at the way this was translated across the spectrum and try and figure out then what does this mean? What does this mean to me? How am I supposed to respond to this? So what, what is the Bible in general, in general terms. I think there's a thought that, you know, the Bible is, is a book about history. It's pretty easy to go back, especially into the Old Testament, but the New Testament too, read these stories and think, somebody was just recording history here that we're now attributing some kind of theological idea about God to. Now, that really is not what the Bible is. The Bible is not a history book. The Bible is, is about theology. The Bible is about God and who God is. And the Bible is God's, I, I think, best attempt. I like to think of it in kind of science fiction, science fiction-y terms. You know, there's this powerful multidimensional being, right, that the, the best he can do to explain to us who he is and how we're supposed to relate to him is what he wanted to put into this book. And there's things in there that get confusing, and especially when you get to Revelation, you get to the end, and it's wild and it's confusing. 
but I think the central message still comes across, and we're going to talk a little bit about what that central message is. But the Bible is, is not about history. Uh, when you go back to Abraham, you go back to Noah, go back to stories about folks in the Old Testament, a few days of their life are recorded uh, over, over the period of their life. Those stories aren't there to record things that happened in their life. Those stories are there because each one of them, it tells us something about who God is. God wanted this story in his book because he wanted us to know this is a, a facet of my character that you need to understand. So that's one basic thing. Uh, I think another mistake that we often make when we read the Bible is what's in it for me? You know, we're looking at this, what am I supposed to do? What's in this for me? But the Bible is not about me. The Bible is about God. And again, the best example I can come up with uh, of that is this. This is Genesis 12. So you've got Noah, you've got the Tower of Babel, and then you come to this section of Genesis 12, and you run into a lot of this stuff in the Old Testament. Uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you see these long lists of names. I'm not even going to read it all. And you get to it, and you read the first couple lines, and you're like, ugh. And you skip on to the next heading. You know, you skip on to the next chapter. And you have to ask yourself, if the Bible is not history, why is this stuff here? Why are these long lists of names and stuff in this book? Well, if, if this book was about me, this list would not be here because I don't, I don't know any of these people. You know, why, why do I need to know who was the father of who was the father of who? What, what's the point of all that? When, when I finally realized what I'm about to tell you, it, it revolutionized my reading of this kind of stuff. When I see these things now and you realize that the Bible is not about me, it's about God. This is God's book, which means it's got the stuff in it God wanted to be in it. So God wanted this list in this book. God knew these people. God cared about these people. And when he had his book written, he put their names in his book. That is a pretty cool thought. You know, if I had lived in this day, would God have put my name in his book? Wouldn't that be cool? Isn't that cool to think about? So when I read these sections of the Bible now, I think, you know, this is the God who carries my picture around in his wallet. This is the God who has my picture on his lock screen of his phone. If he has a phone, he probably doesn't. But, you know, this is the God. He, this is his book. These people's names are in his book because he wanted their names in his book and for no other reason than that. And I think that's pretty cool. That, that means something to me. What is the Bible's central story? And I think this will play into kind of the final point today, which is why should we believe it? If, if you look at the way the Bible is structured... Um, you've got Genesis 1 through 10 at the beginning, Revelation 6 through 22 at the end. And I think there's a couple ways to look at the Bible as there are bookends on the Bible. Genesis 1 through 10, God creates the, the world. He creates animals. He creates man. He creates everything. We experience the fall. And, you know, things get worse and worse. You've got the story of Noah, but things continue to get worse and when you get to Genesis 11, there's this break point 
where, you know, God has told people spread out over the entire world, you know, subdue the world, take control of the world, multiply, be fruitful and multiply. But all the people in the world say, let's get together in the the town that was called Babylon and let's build a tower that goes to the heavens and let's make a name for ourselves. And so God comes down and it's almost comical the way this is written, but he comes down, he's looking down at their little tower and he comes down and confuses their languages. And that forces them, because they don't all speak the same language, to spread across the earth and do the thing that he wanted them to do to begin with. So you've got this opening section of the Bible where in Genesis 11, God creates the nations and confuses the languages and and creates these ethnicities and these people. When you get to Acts 2 then, Jesus has been on earth. Jesus has died and rose again, gone back to heaven, And the disciples are now all sitting in this room at Pentecost, and they're like, "Uh, now now what are we supposed to do? And the Spirit of God comes and indwells them, and they said that tongues of flame appeared above their heads. And what does it say happened to them? Each of them was able to speak in another language. And I think when you read that, you have to think, wait a minute, I've heard that before. That's kind of like back at the Tower of Babel. So you've got Tower of Babel, God creating the nations. You've got Acts 2, Pentecost, and God saying, I'm having each of these people in this room speak in a different language because my mission to you now is to go out to the nations and give them this message, this good news about Jesus. That That was hearkening back to what happened at Babel. I created the nations. I'm now sending the church to the nations. And then when you get to Revelation 5, 9... You've got the lamb who was slain, you know, sitting at the right hand of God, and there's the scroll that needs to be opened. And Revelation 5.9 says, you know, they're looking for someone to open the scroll, but nobody was found worthy to do it except this lamb, Jesus. And he was worthy, it says, because he, had, he died, and with his blood, he purchased people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. So God, in Genesis 11, creates the nations, in Acts 2, sends the church to the nations. And then in Revelation 5, 9, we're basically told it worked. He redeemed people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. And then the end of Revelation is all what happens after that. All of the, the crazy things that, frankly, we don't understand, um, but ultimately end in the new heaven and the new earth at the very end. I think that's another good set of bookends on the way the Bible's organized. Then in Genesis 1-2, we tend to think of heaven as this, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to die, I'm going to go sit on a cloud and play a harp, and and I'm going to be, you know, worshiping God forever by singing songs forever, which isn't really what the Bible describes. You know, heaven and earth in Genesis 1 and 2 were together. Heaven was on earth. Heaven wasn't this place up there. God came down to the earth, and it said he walked in the garden in the cool of the day. He spent time with Adam and Eve. He was on earth with them. It was when the fall happened that God went up to heaven and went away. But in the new heaven, new earth, at the end, in Revelation 21, 22, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. It's on earth. Earth is heaven. Earth is redeemed. Earth is fixed, basically. And so this is, the, these bookends, the one I just talked about with the church and the creation of the church just to be sent to the nations, and then this bigger book, set of bookends around heaven and earth 
were together, but they were separated, and we still live in that today. And then in the end, heaven and earth get back together again. That is the big story of the Bible. So if, if anybody ever stops you in the elevator, I'm a big fan of elevator speeches. You know, know what your elevator speech always is. This is the elevator speech, you know. The Bible is the story of what God was willing to do to get us back. From cover to cover, that's what it is. It's a consistent story, what God was willing to do to get us back. So then why should I trust it? And there's, there's a ton of different arguments out there. I mean, we've talked a little bit today about things like... Um, you know, the, the Gospels were written pretty close to the time of Jesus, and therefore people would have still been alive that could have disproven it. There's a lot of technical arguments like that, but to me, the most powerful illustration or the, mo- the most powerful idea is a philosophical one, why I trust the Bible. This is, this is a picture that my son, Zach, who's a senior over at East High School, he took this of the, the East parking lot, which you know, back, back before he drove and we used to drive him to school and we would pick him up and I would describe the East High parking lot as a hell on earth. Those, those who have been there, when school lets out, it's total insanity. So what you see here in this picture, you know, you've got the line of cars. You know what I'm talking about, Brad. I mean, this line of cars, it's insane. And there's all the people sitting in line And then you can see all these other people that are like trying to go up front and butt in line, right? That absolutely drives me nuts. I hate it. You know, as a good American, I'm going to stand in line. And if people cut in line, that makes me so mad. And the first time I sat in this line, I think I, I remember telling Zach, if that person drives into my car, I will not stop. I will not let them cut in. This, believe it or not, this is my best argument for why I trust the Bible. This, you know, I'm I'm a human being, right? I'm not going to let somebody cut in line in front of me. It makes me mad. It drives me nuts. But isn't that kind of what the story of the Bible is about? If the story of the Bible is about what God was willing to do to get us back... He didn't, he didn't need to get us back. He didn't need us to do anything. You know, he set this thing up and we failed, right? And he, but he came to get us. The whole story of the Bible is him coming to get us back. It's a story about grace. And it, it's kind of outrageous, you know. And, and akin to this picture, you know, God is, is at the front of the line. He's presiding over the line, I'm sitting in this long line of cars that's eternally long. It's hopeless. I'll never get to the end of the line. It's impossible to get to the end of the line. And God doesn't let me cut in line. God, you know, Jesus came and he took my place in line. He took my place at the back of the line and let me go up front. Why would he do that? That's, that's outrageous, you know, I, I don't want to go to East and do that. That's my best argument for why I trust the Bible is if, if people like me, like you, had just come up with this story, this is not what we would have come up with. This is not what humans come up with. We would not have come up with this idea that this all-powerful being 
is going to come and sacrifice himself and let me up to the front of the line because that's not what we do. That's not what we want. We want justice. You know, I want grace, <laughs> grace for me, but justice for everybody else, right? That's the, you see a lot of that in the Psalms, you know, and I think that's just David being honest, you know. Grace for me, justice for everybody else. But grace, when you see it poured out like God has poured it out, it's, it's offensive. You know, doesn't it kind of make you mad? It's not fair, but it's what God wanted to do. It's who God is. I think that is my best argument for why I trust the Bible is we would never have come up with this idea of, of grace. We would never have come up with this idea. You know, God is, if you have not trusted him, he's, he's sitting there beside you in the line. If you're still at the back of the line, it's a long line. You'll never get to the front. You'll never escape. But God is sitting beside you in the line, and all you have to do is let him give you his spot in line. Let him take your spot in line. Uh, It's an amazing story, and that invitation is out there for you today. So let's pray. Father, that's, it really is overwhelming. It's, it's ridiculous what you've done for us. And we don't understand why you did it, but you wanted to do it, and so you did. And we're grateful that you did. And I pray that everybody in here will, will think about that, will take that seriously, that you'll speak to them about it and help them to understand that you're willing to take their place in line if they'll only let you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.